Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, a very warm welcome on what is quite a chilly and grey day. Uh, thank you for joining us this afternoon. To all of those of you who are here in the building in person and also to those of you who are joining online uh, for this, the third panel uh, in today's conference. I'm Alice Lilly. I'm a senior researcher here at the IFG and I've been involved with our Minister's Reflect archive at various points during its few years in operation. So, so far today in this conference, we've heard quite a lot about the role of ministers, about government effectiveness. We've heard about what the IFG's Minister's Reflect archive uh, can tell us about people inside government, how it might be used by people inside government to work more effectively. But one of the things that we also do with the archive is make it public. And part of the reason that we want it to be public and accessible to anybody uh, is because we want it to be used by audiences outside of government as well. And one of the big audiences that we hope use our archive, and that I'm pleased to say do use our archive, are academics who are interested in government, in politics, and in policymaking here in the UK as well as overseas, which we'll hear more about later this afternoon. So some academics, including our wonderful panel here this afternoon, have been making use of the Minister's Reflect archive in all sorts of varied ways in their research and also, as we heard from Leighton Andrews this morning, in their teaching. So in this session, we're going to explore some of that research what it tells us about the day-to-day -day reality of being a minister, the different ways that people might choose to perform the role of minister, and what we can learn from all of that. And I'm delighted to say that we are joined by a brilliant panel. Professor John Boswell, Associate Professor in Politics at the University of Southampton, where he researches public policy, deliberative governance, and interpretive methods. And John, a short while back, spent a bit of time here at the IFG with us uh, doing some research on the Minister's Ar Reflect archive alongside our next panellist, uh, Dr. Jessica Smith, uh, lecturer in politics with quantitative methods at the University of Edinburgh. Jess's research focuses on gender, on political leadership and representation, and particularly the sources and consequences of bias in political systems. And last, but very much not least, uh, we are also joined by Dr. Orly Siao, uh, Associate Senior Lecturer in Gender Studies at Lund University. Thank you for traveling to be here. Uh, Orly's research investigates how women's political representation varies uh, along different lines, so racial, religious, class, partisan lines. Uh, and she's recently been exploring uh, women's substantive representation in the UK Parliament. So thank you to all three of you for coming. What I'm going to do is ask each of our three panellists just to briefly talk a bit about the research they've done uh, and what some of their kind of key findings were. And then we'll get into a bit of discussion. A bit later on, we will open up for questions, both from people online uh, and from those who are here today. So please do start thinking uh, of all the things that you would like to ask our panel. I'm going to start, uh, John, with you. Would you be able just to talk us through a bit how you use the Minister's Reflect Archive in your research and what some of the key findings were? Sure. Uh, thanks very much, Alice, for the, for the invitation. Thanks, everyone, for coming along. Um, as Alice just alluded to there, I've got really fond memories of the IFG. We were, Jess and I were coming um, once a week for a few months. Uh, 
I still can't find the loose. Uh, <laughs> I noticed before, but um, yeah, it's really, really nice to be back. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot I could talk about. I, I'll boil it down to, I guess, um, the key thing I was interested in uh, and pursued through that opportunity. So, so I should say uh, that was funded um, through the ESRC's Impact Acceleration Account, which is a, a way of encouraging researchers like us to engage more with, with real world and the real world impact um, and, and through organisations like the IFG uh, who can do that translation work. So uh, for me, the thing that I was most, interest, most interested in is actually what Tim was sort of introducing around um, the archive this morning. For me, what's really interesting is uh, the, the role of the minister is a unique one uh, and one that has to be, by its nature, learned on the job. Um, so I don't know. I mean, for me, that's a really fascinating thing. No one, no one you know, all, all the various tasks and, and challenges involved and having to, to come to grips with that in mm. the moment. So um, that's the thing I was most interested in. And, and um, I have a, a broader interest in, in what, uh, in the study of public policy we call policy learning. So the ways in which people uh, gather and integrate knowledge and wisdom and, and evidence uh, in, order, in their kind of making of public policy. So I use this as a way of thinking about, you know, how do ministers learn? Mm. Uh, that was what I wanted to do, uh, and along with my colleagues like Jess and, and uh, Dan Devine, who's at the audience somewhere. Um, <laughs> so that, that's what we've set about doing, uh, and what that involved was, was really getting stuck into the archive, so mm. really reading it in, in, you know, in depth, um, which is something I really enjoy. It's part of, part of my work I really enjoy. Don't actually enjoy particularly gathering uh, the data. I'm really pleased that the IFG have gone out and done that. It's, uh, I was talking to some people earlier at lunch. Um, the logistics involved <coughs> in, in getting this much interview material is amazing. Um, it takes a lot of effort. So, so the fact that it just exists, it's there. It's, for me, it's the most fun part of the job is kind of making sense of the data, making sense of what's happening um, in qualitative data. So I was really interested in this. Went out and had a look at, uh, you know, how do ministers learn? That's, that's what I'm most interested in. Um, and I think, I'm not going to go into too much depth on the findings, uh, but just to say essentially the message is not all in the same way, right? So <laughs> what, what we kind of boil down at is a typology of different learning styles, that, pe that ministers approach the role in quite different ways. Um, and I guess we think that matters because as we're talking about, you know, how do we use this kind of resource to help in the real world? Um, that, that one size isn't going to fit all, essentially, uh, in some of the induction and training and, and using the lessons from that. Uh, and there might be ways of, of uh, adapting or providing a kind of uh, a repertoire uh, mm -hmm. of ways of, of helping um, ministers get to grips with their job, but also civil servants who, who uh, want to engage and in, 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 uh, induct them. So I think I'll leave it at that and pass on. Brilliant, thank you. And that's, that's such an important point because it's so easy to think of ministers as this sort of discrete group of people mm. and actually not think about the different preferences and styles and ways of learning that they have. So that's a really useful insight. Uh, Jess, you were here with uh, John. Uh, I did work out where the loos were. You did work out where the loos were, so <laughs> one nil to Jess. Uh, what about you? You were looking at things with a slightly different perspective. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, what I want to talk about actually, it's, it directly relates to John in that we came at this knowing that, you know, we have this brilliant database, as John's saying, we don't have to, you know, go out and find with 
150 or so exit interviews. Um, and what can we do in applying an academic lens to that? Um, and I did some work like John did, looking in depth, kind of reading through. But it also presented this opportunity to try some different methods. And as academics, we're always interested in kind of the new method and using innovative methods. So I want to sort of quickly talk about one of the opportunities of academia of approaching this in a slightly different way, um, which is thinking about what's called automated text as data techniques, which basically, as the name suggests, right, treats these interviews as data in and of themselves. And we can analyze them on a sort of a large scale quantitatively. So these new techniques basically make possible what used to be impossible, right? We can do this large scale analysis of vast amounts of texts. And they've usually been used for things like manifestos or speeches. And the brilliance of the Minister's Reflect Archive is actually it's the first time we've had a sort of large enough body of interview data that you can apply these methods to that and really start to try and spot some overall patterns that are occurring here. And that's not to say these basically complement the kind of work that John mainly does, and also me as well, of a very close reading of these texts, because obviously you have to think about context, etc. Um, and so basically with our fantastic colleague, Daniel Devine, um, who's in the room and is a much better quantitative political scientist than me, <laughs> um, we uh, looked at, can we play around with doing this method with, with the IFG data? Um, and basically, we started really simple. So what you can do is you can just start and look at, well, what words occur together in these interviews? So how frequently do certain words appear together? Um, and that suggests there's a relationship between these kind of um, institutions that are being mentioned or policies or that are being mentioned. And we spotted, and actually it was mentioned in the first panel, this in the qualitative work, that parliament was sort of often sidelined in some of the discussions. Um, so we look at, well, what are all these different aspects of the policy process, parliament, civil service, private office, etc., and how often are these being mentioned together? So for sake of argument, we said, how often do these phrases appear um, within, say, 20 words or fewer of each other? And then we can produce these sort of maps, if you like, um, of how associated certain words are with each other. And we found a couple of, of interesting things from an initial running of this data. Basically, people was very central. So on these maps, kind of people was central and very connected to all these other aspects of the policy process. And that comes out in some of the discussions today, the, the importance of personal relationships and that day-to-day -day work of ministers. And it really showed that sidelining of parliament as well. So we saw really weak mm -hmm. connections between parliament and all these other aspects, which suggests, you know, ministers are seldom associating Parliament with all these other aspects of the policy process. And in the interviews with the close reading, you can see this frustration of the kind of two hats that ministers have to wear. Once we do that, then you can also look at, okay, this is what ministers are saying. How are they saying it? Um, so you might want to find some way of putting these interviews into categories or some sort of ideological scaling of the text. So we can do this in several ways. You can use sort of preset scores or dictionaries and, and apply those to the interviews, or you can kind of use the data itself to create your own. So in that first way, you can get these sort of different off-the-shelf, if you like, dictionaries. It could be as simple as um, 
there's analysis that shows if language being used is positive or negative, right? So you can look at around, say, the civil service, the same idea, around sort of 20 words or so of, of ministers talking about the civil service, how positive or negative are they? And the great thing we have as well is we can combine this with background data of the ministers, for example, you know, what party are they from, what level of office were they in, et cetera, and see if there's variation then in, you know, are people from certain parties more positive or negative about the civil service? Although an initial analysis showed that there was just great variation and no mm. overall pattern. Uh, a lot of people were negative, a lot of people were positive, and uh, so far not, not a really distinct pattern in, in that. But we can apply that to lots of different elements you know, of that ministerial mm. job. Um, and we can also do things like um, create our own. So talking about going forward, one of the things we'd like to do is uh, with these categories of different types of learning that, that John's talking about, what we can do is basically train um, uh, the program to, to spot these types of learning in itself and then categorize, say, which ministers are mm. more frequently showing this type of learning or this type of management, um, this type of management style. And I think going forward, we're going to look at doing much more of that and building our own dictionaries based on things like uh, what's seen as a more kind of feminized style of leadership or a more masculinized style of leadership. And we can apply this to Ministers Reflect combined with knowing the background data um, to really offer a large scale mm. kind of overarching um, uh, viewpoint about you know, what are the sets, uh, what are the patterns that are coming across here. So basically, we're keeping working on that. The, you know, the possibilities of academia for this are large. Um, and what we'd like to do is end up with um, a kind of functioning package that we can offer to academics, which will automatically take all of these um, interviews off the IFG website in a way that they get, then can be analyzed in this way, um, offer these kind of types of dictionaries of the different types of management or leadership you may be looking for. Um, and merge that with the background data. We've also been working with IFG to you know, hone down all that background data on ministers. And we can ask questions then like, you know, do female ministers systematically address different topics, talking mm. to Orly's work? Or do ministers from different backgrounds or departments talk about different things or in different ways? Are they more positive? Are they more negative, et cetera? So it's just a kind of very quick overview of what is a reasonably <laughs> complex method. I hope it's given you a taster of what we can and are trying to do with it. That was an incredibly clear explanation. <laughs> it was very complicated. And it was, it was fantastic for us as well, as you talked about at the beginning, the sort of blurring of the qualitative and the quantitative with this. And actually for us at IFG, we tend to think about these interviews in quite sort of small groups when we conduct them or when we publish them, but actually being able to look at them across the piece and see the kind of patterns and themes that emerged. So that's been something that we found incredibly helpful from your work. Uh, Orly, you've used the, the Minister of Reflect Archive in a slightly different way, so over to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think like um, Jess, um, like Jess's work, I'm very interested in thinking about different methodological approaches um, to this data and also like um, John and other colleagues involved in this work I'm very interested in in differences between ministers and mm -hmm. how they how they approach their different briefs um, so the the kind of the fundamental question that um, me and my colleagues um, are, are working on in relation to this is really about ministers own identities in terms of their gender and their race 
and the relationship between those aspects of their identities and the extent to which and the ways in which they engage with civil society working on gender and race mm -hmm. issues. Um, and we, we started this project working with a completely different um, set of data, a quantitative data set of meetings between ministers and external organizations. And doing some quantitative analysis on that, we could see very, very clearly that some ministers were much more likely to meet with race and gender organizations mm -hmm. and that some ministers were much less likely to do so. And the ministers that were by far least likely to do so were those who were white and who were men. And we could see that even if we accounted for the different kinds of briefs ministers had, this pattern was still going on. But we didn't know why. We didn't know whether it was that ministers who were white men were less likely to reach out to these organizations. We didn't know whether these kinds of organizations were perhaps less likely to reach out to ministers of different identities. And we didn't really know what was kind of going on within the black box of these meetings. And that was where the Ministers Reflect mm. archive was incredibly useful because it could tell us about the different kinds of contexts ministers were working in, depending yeah. on their identities, the different kind of motivations they had, the different kinds of networks that they were bringing to the table. And it could really help us tease out the... Um, the, the factors that were underlying those relationships and work out the, the nuance of what was going on between ministers' engagements with those organizations. And that's also really important if we want to think about um, perhaps increasing certain ministers' engagements with certain kinds of organizations. Mm -hmm. We need to know what, what those factors are that might be hindering that. Um, so, so for us, this has been an amazing resource to combine, to combine with other kinds of data that can tell us some things, but can't tell us everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And something, and we, we touched on it, John, when you started speaking about your research, but a theme that comes across from all of your work is, again, this idea of uh, ministers performing their roles in very different ways, having very different preferences, different approaches, different learning styles. And I'm wondering, from your perspective as academics, as people outside of government who spend an awful lot of time thinking about people inside of government, how well do you think the kind of role and day-to-day -day reality of being a minister is actually understood by people outside of the sort of Westminster or Whitehall uh, bubble? Uh, John, perhaps I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, so I mean, the, my first introduction to, to Ministers Reflect was actually uh, in teaching. So mm. I would give it to my students. Um, I teach a, a course in research methods or have for a long time to undergraduate students uh, who don't usually enjoy uh, learning about research methods. Um, <laughs> and so one way to kind of make it more interesting is to make it thematically based on something they are interested in. And, and many of them are interested in, in um, British politics and Westminster and Whitehall and how it works. Um, so Ministers Reflect was kind of a good resource for that. Um, and one of the things I'm always struck by when I, you know, when I would set that for students is that they, um, they gathered a new appreciation, shall we say, <laughs> for the work, uh, of the, for the challenges of, of what ministers do. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's a large part of it, not quite understanding the range of roles involved and the, the challenges and people that they might see on the news and, and not all, you know, know of historically and think uh, negatively of, they suddenly had a new appreciation of. So uh, Nick Clegg in particular, 
picks up lots of student fans that he wouldn't probably have expected, um, <laughs> given given uh, the history there. So um, that's uh, I think I think for sure there's you know it, I mean it's an opportunity for them to reflect and obviously there is a an element of um, uh, these sorts of interviews always have a kind of appreciational tone mm. often, um, which you know could be read as you know in a negative light as well but I, I think for sure they it's it's when you get into the life world mm. of of an actor that you might not see in that kind of three-dimensional sense um, it gives a new appreciation so so that's uh, one side of it at least from the students budding budding people involved in politics yeah, and civil service and so on that's really interesting to hear uh Orly, does that resonate with your experience at all have you have you used any of this in in your teaching um so i haven't used it in my teaching yet but i am um absolutely intending to use it in my teaching um, next semester, thinking about elite interviews, so thinking, mm. about, um, thinking about the, the, um, the specific work that goes into creating um, really good rapport and really positive dynamics in an interview with somebody who is, you know, is in a kind of the context of a unique set of pressures, mm. but also has unique capabilities as an interviewee yeah. um, and um, so so we're definitely going to use it for, for teaching those kinds of interviews but I think also to have such a, an excellent um, and publicly available um, set of transcripts that's fantastic for teaching students mm -hmm. different approaches whether it's manually coding the interviews whether it's doing more interpretivist approaches whether it's doing the kind of topic modeling that Jess is doing there's there's, there's I mean there's there's huge opportunities for teaching. Mm. So, yeah. And Jess, do you do you feel the role of minister is particularly well understood, or, or even was there anything that particularly surprised you yeah, when you were going yeah. through these interviews? I mean, I think well understood. I think in the you know outside of the Western Australia, I think within the public, I'm going to take an educated guess that no. Um, <laughs> and I'm, and we know this in sort of in academic work about sort of the, you know, there's a gap in kind of expectations of what people want from politicians and what they actually are capable of doing within their roles. And um, we know that there's a change in kind of um, demands in what people think make the, the good politician, it's academics in the room that have worked on that, um, this, you know, that there, there's this want for say more authenticity and things like that. It's also quite a kind of nebulous, difficult concept. And, and how do you show that when you're also balancing all of these? Responsibilities within the within the academic bubble, um, I think that you know it's a little bit of a better conception, I hope. Um, <laughs> but I, I know something actually that surprised. Well, John, I know you've said this before. That surprised us is um, there's a lot in the academic um, policy uh, literature about evidence-based policy making. Which I'm sure, familiar with the idea that you know you're mm. going to kind of hear from experts, take evidence. And um, there wasn't quite as much talking from that from the minister's side in the, um, in the interviews, which, which I think is surprising because, you know, there's sort of theories that this is, this is the way that some people approach policymaking and it wasn't necessarily always coming across mm. in how much we might predict it to be. So that was one thing that was surprising reading through them, I think. And so, so sort of almost challenging some of the assumptions that are baked into the existing... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which shows, you know, the value of having, you know, such more access, if you like, to, mm. to that black box, as Ollie put it, of ministerial decision-making. Mm. Maybe we're not making assumptions or basing it on, very, on, on small amount of cases. 
Mm. And, and something as well that the three of you have spoken about is in your work, you were both looking at these interviews and you were doing that in the context of thinking about the different backgrounds and experiences of, of each of the ministers you were looking at. Um, and perhaps, Oli, if I start with you, because you've, you've already started to speak a bit about this, I'm interested to know the extent to which you, you found or started to find sort of relationships between perhaps ministers' prior roles or previous experiences, um, and then how they were approaching their jobs as minister. Were there any noticeable sort of links or, or not so much? There were, there were definitely some really noticeable links. I mean, if I think about... If I think about ministers with women and equalities briefs, mm. there will, um, um, you know, there's a there's a big range of different identities, um, range of different kind of professional backgrounds that will come into that into that in, into that brief. So, some of those ministers will come in with, for example, very strong networks within the so-called women's sector or within feminist movements, um, and so they will come to that brief already with a set of networks that they intend to work with a set of issues um, that are very much informed by those networks that they're really interested in working on, and will also share the way that they kind of frame those issues with those, with those sort of non-governmental actors that they have links with. And other ministers might come into a women and equalities brief with a very different set of experiences and a very different set of commitments. Mm. So some will come in, for example, and, 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 and this is shown very clearly in the, in the archives, they might come in, for example, without strong links in the feminist movement, mm -hmm. but with very strong links in business and um, very strong commitments to, for example, gender equality in business context. So they'll be drawing on a different set of networks, and that will mean that they're focusing on a different set of issues and a very different set of uh, ways of framing those issues as well. Mm. Um, and, um, and that means, of course, that the positive side of that that we can see from the interviews is that people are uh, there are very diverse ways of doing that. Perhaps if we're a little bit critical about it, we might say that this means that sometimes the um, ministers don't tend to come from the most marginalized groups, mm. and therefore, while they'll have links with certain kinds of organizations, certain kinds of of, of civil society or certain kinds of other networks, there might be some limits on that. Yeah. And, and so as academics, maybe that's something for us to be, as, as sort of policy-focused academics, that's something for us to be conscious of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but there's definitely a huge, a huge diversity just in that, in that sort of small In that sample. sample. Yeah. And John, you are obviously interested in sort of learning styles of ministers. Again, was this an area where you saw any kind of relationship between the kind of preferences that ministers had and their sort of backgrounds or, you know, previous experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just actually just picking up on a little bit on that point, mm. well, taking it in a different direction. Um, mm. the, I mean, what, another paper that, that Jess and Dan and, other, and others are working on is around um, concern around the political class. Mm. So this idea, it's in within the academic literature at least, and I think it's, there's a certain public discourse around it as well, that... Uh, Westminster and Whitehall is dominated by people who are professionalised through politics and, and politics facilitating roles, uh, so things like aides, advisors and so on, going on to become MPs and then uh, very quickly uh, into ministerial roles. Mm. Um, and so um, if you look at say, that category of person with that background, they all tend to be, if we could come back to what Leighton was talking about earlier, they, they, their, their focus their learning style is very much focused on being instrumental, on delivery, 
right? So they have things that they want to deliver, uh, and they'll push that through, and that's a big focus of what comes through. Mm. So for sure, I think there are certain backgrounds that, that will lead to um, particularly professional backgrounds, mm. uh, but also uh, those intersect with um, demographic background as well. Um, that have a big impact on how people, their disposition to the role um, and, and their approach to learning in it. Yeah. Jess, does that resonate with some of your work? Yeah, yeah, we, we found yeah, there was this sort of um, correlation sometimes between certain types of learning and background. And I think what's also interesting was actually how much ministers themselves brought up their background. Really common mm. in the interviews to talk about, you know, I came into this department and suddenly, you know, I'm managing all these people, but that's fine because I used to run a business of 1,500 people, therefore I did what I've always done and approached it this way. Or, um, you know, essentially I was just doing the same thing as I used to do as a social worker, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. um, so I think what's interesting is that ministers very actively were talking about bringing in their professional background, more so maybe than their parliamentary sometimes um, as well. Um, and yeah, we saw, we saw some differences. I was interested in some of the, some of the gender differences and, and some of them weren't as stark maybe as we'd first um, expect. But I mean, I say expect, right? I mean, it's, a, it's a complex thing. It's not going to be as simple as, you know, women manage this way, men manage yeah. that way. Um, there's a lot of also institutionalization of an expectation to act a certain way. What is interesting is you see quite a few of the women in, in the archives talk about managing that talking about this expectation that the role is seen in a certain way and to be occupied by a certain type of person and they didn't necessarily fit that role and therefore they adapted to that in some way. Um, or, you know, that could be actually trying to become that or it could be more being stricter about actually that might be what's happened before but that's not how, you know, I'm going to run things. So there's this sort of question about the you know, gender and the good minister or the good yeah. politician, which I think there's a story about in the archives that's something I continue to kind of look for and unpicking. Yeah. Um, I should say to our audience, I will be opening up for questions in a moment, so please do be thinking of things. People online, uh, please do use Slido to, to submit your questions, and we'll turn to those in a moment. But before we do, the sort of last question I have for you as a panel was, Thinking as people who are interested in public policy, in kind of effective government, having spent this time trawling through uh, our lovely and very interesting archive, was there anything that you sort of thought, actually, there is a change that I would like to see made or that I think needs to be made in the sort of world of government or, or policy. So that might be something around, for example, training or learning, or it, it might be something else. Was there sort of anything that, that struck you in that sense? Orly, perhaps I'll, I'll start with you. I think, um, I think one of the things I was very conscious of reading through the archive with a very different context in which context in which ministers were <laughs> working, and this speaks yeah. very much to what Jess says about you know certain gendered norms or expectations, mm. and um, and and that creates a set of incentives for ministers to operate in particular ways, and I think we need to think about whatever it is that we want from ministers, we need to incentivize them to be able to do that. We need to be able to make that yeah. to be possible in their interests. So for example, thinking about this project that we're doing, looking at their engagement with some of the most marginalized groups beyond parliaments, for ministers to be able to do that consistently, whoever the minister is, there mm. needs to be some kind of incentive for them to mm. do that. 
Mm. So, but that's perhaps quite a sort of <laughs> radical suggestion. <laughs> but there's something there about the sort of incentives and expectations mm-hmm. that we have for ministers and, and how those can translate into, into what uh, ministers do. Jess, what about you? Anything you thought perhaps needed to change? I mean, I think your mention of training really strongly comes out and and it comes out with with ministers who have attended some IFG training in the Mm. past um, who talk about how useful that was and 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 the importance of setting objectives at the beginning setting your intentions sort of thing Um, and and I and that's replicated in in work on parliament Um, so it's interesting Mm. to see it in say the next level work on parliament shows that there's a problem with sort of being thrown into this institution that has very much its own norms and expectations and you may not come from a background that knows that and then Mm. offering no sort of induction if you like Um, so I think yeah some sort of ministerial induction Um, and and I think also think about Oli um, I think it's interesting to think about there's no, there's no time to reflect, really, as a yeah. minister. Right? It's yeah. part of the problem. And in a way, you want, you want an opportunity built in where ministers can learn something about who have I been meeting with? Am I missing yeah. people, right? And mm-hmm. we could say, look, here are your networks. Who have you, here's who you've been meeting with. Are, are you missing groups? And mm-hmm. this is obviously pie in the sky kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, but it would be interesting. Could you build in some, some point of reflection? And that's something across the, you know, across politics and policymaking that is always incredibly mm. difficult um, and it's a problem with short to long termism, et cetera. And it's it's something as well that comes across in the interviews because it's notable how often the ministers are saying, you know, I was back to back in meetings, yeah. I never had any time. And yeah. then you're also seeing the consequences of that. Yeah. And, and they find and it's and it's frustrating as well. Yeah. Like, it's not saying like I don't need this time. I don't wouldn't yeah. like to have some time to time to think. Um, so I'm now thinking about a sort of thick of it style away day with you know, <laughs> <laughs> post-it notes on the head. Yeah. yeah. So if we can just invent some more hours in the day, <laughs> yeah. that would help. Uh, John, what about you? Anything particularly oh. given you were thinking about sort of ministerial learning? Yeah, so I mean, just to, to I mean, agree essentially. And when uh, Una was talking this morning uh, and talked about it not being a kind of one off thing and being an ongoing mm-hmm. thing, I was nodding along and thinking that sounded uh, very wise indeed. Um, the other kind of finger I would put on it so, so looking at ministerial learning, one of the, the categories we had was uh, it's called reflexive learning. So it's kind of learning how you learn yeah. mm-hmm. and the extent to which. And, and I would say by far that was the least. <laughs> uh, coded, we call it, you know, when you, when you, when you um, put something in a, in a category. Uh, it was by far the least coded across. I mean, there, there, there was, of course, some reflection on it, mm. but it was much less focused on. Um, but the other thing would be um, that people seem to have, quite, again, different dispositions to it. So some people, for example, so we heard from Chloe Smith this morning who said, you know, she really enjoyed devouring her big folder of information mm. and others say that there's nothing worse. So put that straight in the bin, they're not interested in it at all. Kind of thing, you know. Come back to me with a post-it note. Uh, or, or I'd rather have a meeting or I'd rather you know, go out into the field and get to know things. So, so there's definitely different ways of doing it. And I think my suspicion is that uh, imposing a particular form of induction you know, would, would be quite difficult and that mm. it's more about um, just making it part of the practice. The, uh, I mean, pick up on Leighton's terms, uh, it's often called reflective practice, like a, a way in which um, practitioners or professionals learn about their craft and learn how to do it better. Um, I think something to build that in, uh, but to, to make it potentially a bit bespoke for different, mm. um, different personalities, essentially, um, I think would be really useful. And that's, that's so important for ministers to be able to find that time to kind of think about what their preferences are 
but it's also important for the people who work with them to be able to find that. So, you know, thinking about sort of private office teams or civil servants, in the example you've just outlined, some minister might enjoy digesting huge amounts of information, whereas other ministers might think, no, thank you, and actually for everybody to work effectively, hmm. you need them all to kind of be on the, on the same page. Um, I promised that I would open up uh, for questions. So if there is anybody in the room with questions, please raise your hand. My colleague Maddie will come over with a mic. I'll probably try and take them of groups of maybe two or three at a time. For those watching online, please do uh, submit your question via Slido. I am monitoring those uh, as we speak. I think we had, uh, yes, uh, I'll take these uh, three. All right, thank, thank you very much. My name's John Haig, uh, I'm a writer. Um, I just wanted to, I wondered if you might be interested in considering the possibility of how the archive learning and evidence can be shared more widely to a sort of broader civic and public body through creative and cultural means. Mm. Um, for example, um, perhaps there's opportunity for historical dramatization mm -hmm. um, of the kind of effectively verbatim reports. Um, as, as a means of kind of engaging a kind of a broader understanding um, and kind of the opportunity and also the validity of doing that. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you so much. I hadn't thought about that at all. Uh, yes, just here. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Rasika, civil servant, DLUC. Uh, I've got two parts of the question. Mm -hmm. One is that there's been a big push in the government regarding upskilling of data learning, both for ministers and civil servants. And uh, as academic colleagues, I'd like to ask if there are specific parts of data that you feel is most handy in policy development, politics, in the real world of things. Mm -hmm. And the second part to this question is, uh, uh, this comes from a personal bias because I am a trained uh, qualitative researcher. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I do tend to feel with all this push behind data, uh, which, which is fantastic, but the qualitative research is just falling behind. Mm -hmm. How do we make it relevant beyond behavioral insight? Mm -hmm. Really interesting set of mm -hmm. questions. Thank you very much. And then, yes, here at the front, thank you. Hi there, thank you very much for such an interesting panel. Um, I'm Emma Peploma, the History of Parliament Trust, and I oversee our oral history project. Um, and it's fascinating to hear how academics are using this sort of stuff because we have lots of this in our archive. Um, I'm afraid this is particularly to sort of Jess and Orly. Um, we're really interested, or I'm really interested in our interviews with women MPs mm -hmm. and with ethnic minority MPs, and we are going back quite a while. But it seems to me that in our interviews, these these people see their entire careers through the prism almost of their gender. They're mm -hmm. telling their story through gender mm -hmm. or their ethnic minority, how their first day in parliament is told mm -hmm. very much through these lines or so on. So I was interested if that is coming through in, mm -hmm. in this archive as well. And if so, how, how are you seeing that reflected in the different ways that you're analyzing it? Because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very much just listening to this and <laughs> getting an, a, an opinion, but I'm interested to hear in the methodologies mm -hmm. you're using and how you're able to do that. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, perhaps if we uh, start with those sort of last two sets of questions that were kind of around methodology, so thinking about sort of uh, getting the most of data, but also still applying kind of qualitative methods, but also uh, what some of those methods can uh, yield. Uh, Jess, I'll perhaps start with you on, on those. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, um, yeah, start in the beginning about... Um, sort of uh, cultural means, I think, yeah, like I said, that's a really interesting mm -hmm. um, question, something that maybe we could work more with the IFG mm -hmm. on and how to present this in, um, 
in diverse and interesting ways that's going to capture a, a broader audience. Maybe going back to the idea that maybe the public don't have an understanding mm. of what it means to be a minister. Could we do something that's more um, uh, informative about that building from, from the archives? Um, and uh, yeah, we were offering to act in the drama. <laughs> then, uh, I'm sure there's some budding actors in IFG that would like to. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, and thinking um, uh, about yeah the importance of qualitative. I mean, to be, I'll, I'll maybe let John take that as the quality. I mean, I am qualitative and quantitative, um, but I think it's, it's a really relevant question, mm -hmm. and it's um, there's probably um, a very academic debate going on about that as well. Um, and parts of Dave that's helpful, I think actually, I think one, I think it's really good to have, it, have an under, a basic understanding even, right? And I think this is one of the things that came out of COVID, say, is, is actually suddenly how important statistics were and having an understanding of sort of margin of error and things like that. And actually, um, just, you know, ad hoc this morning, seeing some stuff about the COVID inquiry, I saw a colleague talking about... Um, the lack of actually this, this, there was obviously a lot of data going on in terms of um, health data, etc. super important, but also actually there's a lot more that can be learned from political science in actually how, how do we um, help people to understand policy, how do we help people adhere to policy when it's really important, say, in a national crisis. And that kind of um, data wasn't being used as much, mm -hmm. and I think it'd be interesting to think about um, how to build that in more into some of uh, some of these policy making processes, not just um, uh, sort of the other end of it, if you like. How do you help people understand policy and, and um, adhere to important public health policies? So, um, do you want me to leave the um, gender question? Gender. Well, if you want to take that, and then I'll also throw it over to Orly as well. Yeah, um, I think that's really interesting. And um, uh, in wider academic, I'm looking at using the history uh, in Parliament Project alongside the IFGs to do some stuff on this changing notion of good mm -hmm. politician and the role of gender and that. Um, I think it's really interesting that you think that you found it's, it's seen very much through that prism. I wonder if there's something about um, these moments where it really matters. So in the, in the archives, it tends to be when talking about that first entering the role that it comes up. Um, and also there's this great end question that um, is always asked about what's the effective minister or what advice would yeah. you give to others? And, and I think there's something to unpick there in terms of what is this concept that, that continually comes up. Um, and so I think it makes sense maybe that we're seeing this potentially stronger in that in when MPs are talking about their overall experience of being an MP is it's that, it's that first entry into that institution that shapes your understanding of, of what is this role um, and how do I fit or not fit mm. into these, these norms, um, both formal and informal, that are happening around me. And that will then ongoing shape your experience right up to then entering the next institution, if you like, of, of what does a ministerial institution look like. Orly, does that, does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, I mean, that, what Jess says absolutely resonates. I think what I would add to it is one of the things that I was quite surprised at reading these interviews was that um, ministers talked a lot more about gender than race. Mm. And I don't know if it was, um, and, I, and, and I'm not sure what that was about, mm. um, but, um, but because we definitely see racially minoritized MPs talking, you know, um, and, and racially minoritized women MPs yes. have talked, you know, we've all, we've all seen interviews and, and, and reflections, um, Dawn Butler in her recent book. Mm. So, um, 
so, but, we'd, but we're definitely seeing an effect in terms of um, ethnic minority uh, ministers the, 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 uh, are doing a lot more of this work, meeting with um, uh, race equality organizations. Um, but they weren't talking about it in these in these interviews, and I'm not sure what that's that's about. But but so, I think the thing that I think is interesting is often we talk about race and gender together, and I think what's going on here is maybe something quite 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 different. Um, and just in relation to um, John's point about sort of sharing the, the this more widely and in creative ways, I think. Um, in our own research when we're looking at um, civil society engagement with ministers I think that would be a very useful thing because civil society organisations have you know, huge variation in terms of um, their understanding of parliamentary processes their networks with ministers their understanding of ministerial realities or government realities and I think again this would be useful from that, that perspective as well um, and yeah and just on, the, on data I think I think I would agree with, with what you both say. All the different forms of data are really important and, mm. and uh, literacy of different forms of, mm. of data is really important. Yeah. And John, I was just going to quickly come to you on the questions about sort of different types of data and what kinds of things we sometimes prioritise or, or deprioritise uh, in research but also inside government. Yeah, so this is... Uh a topic close to my heart, um, <laughs> and um, I should say in another hat, I'm a co-convener of the Centre for Political Ethnography, so I'm very much uh, a, an advocate for and, and keen on qualitative methods. Um, I think the challenge for, well, probably both in government and for academics trying to influence government and those of us outside, um, is um, that, that often qualitative methods are seen as a bit old-fashioned, as a bit, you know, they don't quite have the, the impact and the, the power factor. Mm. Um, and so the challenge is to kind of bring that out. And I still think, um, without question, you know, storytelling is a very effective means of mm. getting messages across. Um, and it's just a question of, you know, using the kind of infrastructure we have around us to, to, better, to better do that. Um, so, I don't know, there are examples like um, the... Uh, um, equivalent organisation, so you might tell from my accent I'm a Kiwi, uh, but I, I did a PhD in Australia, um, and the equivalent organisation, similar organisation to IFG in Australia, has a, a case library. Mm. And they use that for their training and people find it hugely useful because it's, it's a collection of stories, you know, cautionary tales or success stories and these sorts of things. And, and actually it's very, very, um, it's a way of bringing that qualitative data to life often. Um, so I think that's the challenge, is to kind of compete on that front. And I, uh, I just want to come to the, the culture, mm. uh, you know, cultural, I, I thought it was a really interesting idea. What it brought for mind to me, but I've been thinking about the work you've done here. Um, as I was reading, I was also thinking a lot, I was re-watching, I'm going to forget the name, it was the BBC documentary, it was a four-part documentary where they went inside Parliament, it might be called Inside it's Parliament, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Inside Parliament, um, which was great. It was a really, you know, I mean, it probably only attracted nerds like those of us in the room, but... <laughs> It was uh, a really interesting way of humanising the experience and the sort of baffling experience of being in Parliament and the rituals and, you know, all the where, where do you go and, and so on. And I imagine something similar could be mm. achieved uh, for the ministerial life. Um, there are probably more sensitivities <laughs> around it. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, the Obama administration had cameras. Mm. Uh, there's mm. a, another documentary series there. But I, I think something like that... Um, 
could be a kind of cultural way of bringing this, mm. this into being. Um, mm. I suspect uh, you know, uh, Tim and, and Alice and Kath will make better front people for that than someone like me. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, a, a possible idea. Any, uh, any documentary makers watching, please do uh, get your bids in. They will be sympathetically heard. Uh, thank you. I, I should say we've uh, had a question uh, as well from uh, somebody who's asking if it might be possible for us to uh, share uh, at some point after this event some of the uh, actual work that our wonderful mm -hmm. panellists have done, which I'm, I'm sure we will be able to do in some mm -hmm. way so you can go and uh, peruse it uh, at your leisure. Um, Time for a one further round of questions. Yes, we've got uh, two here at the front and then one there. Thank you. Hi, I'm panelist turned audience member, <laughs> Una O'Brien. Um, I'm really interested in your, if you like, your methodological perspective on the questions that are being asked. Mm -hmm. What questions are not being asked? What's mm. the impact of the questions that are being asked mm. on the sort of answers they evoke? And I'd love to hear from your experience how you would um, evaluate the trade-off between the consistency for the future of sticking with the questions that, that we've got versus dropping some, adjusting, changing the language, and so on. I'm just interested in you know, the future archive and where, where we go with mm. that. And um, just a, an observation on the last point. In 2009, there were very active conversations about cameras being in the Department of Health in the first six months after the general mm. election. And I think we, got, we were close to thinking we would do it. Um, but it's a highly complicated thing to navigate. Mm. But I think an ethnographic study, even if it wasn't a broadcast one, but an academic study of life in a department over a year would be a really wonderful mm. contribution um, if some way could be found from the academic community to get funding and propose that. That's a fantastic idea. Thank you. Uh, I think the gentleman just behind you actually had a yes. Hi, uh, I'm Josh, I'm a parliamentary assistant, and um, in my study of the civil service at undergrad, I came across uh, a challenge um, perennially that civil servants and ministers often place a positive or different emphasis on particular events than offered by a minister, mm -hmm. and that both actors try to exaggerate their own role and competence um, throughout. So in your interviews, do you, you know, encounter this uh, issue as well? Mm -hmm. Brilliant, thank you. And uh, then a uh, gentleman on the end there, thank you. Thanks, Maddy. Thank you, Nick Clark, um, University of Southampton. And my question connects up with the question that was just asked, I think. Um, it's great to have three people here who've read a lot of the interview transcripts, and there are probably other people in the room that have done so as well. Um, one thing that presumably shapes the archive is the agenda of the Institute for Government, which mm -hmm. is interested in particular things, asking mm. particular questions and so on. Presumably something else that shapes the content of the interviews is the agenda of the ministers being interviewed. So I'm interested in what do they think they're doing when they're participating in these interviews? Are they um, writing a first... Um, first go at history? Mm -hmm. Are they settling scores? Mm -hmm. 
Are they using it as therapy? <laughs> there, there are a whole series of things that they might be doing that might shape what we then get in yeah. the interviews. So I'd, from the people who've read lots of these interviews, I'd be really interested to hear what they think about that. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, John, I might start with you. So we've got something around the kinds of questions and the benefits of, of consistency or not in those questions, different uh, agendas that former ministers might have, um, but also sort of the different ways that ministers and officials might perceive certain events. Mm. Take your pick. <laughs> OK, I'll, well, I'll give a response and we'll see uh, which of those questions I've answered. Um, so for me, the, I mean... The, the questions are reasonably consistent. They're not fully consistent in the mm. archive now. So you can tell sometimes that it's about an issue of access uh, and what people have agreed to. So, I mean, the, the, the biggest outlier in the archive is the interview with Tony Blair. And that was very clearly a different purpose to that interview. Um, it doesn't ask many of the same questions and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, uh, but you know, that, that's an extreme example, but that you can tell sometimes. Uh, my understanding um, is that uh, because it's on the public record, that's a bit of a trade-off, essentially, um, because it will need to be signed off by people. Mm. Um, I'm sure you have something similar with the, the history of Parliament and so on. Um, it's, it's the trade-off. So mm. normally, like if, if I conduct a research interview with an elite, I will have access to that whole interview. They might tell me not to use some things in publication. That's fine. Mm. But in this case, because the interview transcript, uh, transcript itself is public, there's some editing that goes on at times, I think. So... Um, so that will affect consistency. I don't see that as, as a huge problem, particularly for the kind of work I do, which is a bit more take it as it comes uh, <laughs> interpretive. Um, in terms of what's not asked, I mean, partly because, because they're on the record, there is a certain, um, which I think speaks to the question um, from Josh behind you as well, is that, uh, there are degrees of how reflective and uh, occasionally kind of self-critical people are versus how um, defensive they seem. Um, and I think that that speaks to, you know, when you're doing an interview like this, it's a kind of an appreciative inquiry, you know, tell me what it was like, rather than a cross-examination uh, that you might see in, mm. in, the, in the media. Um, and that's a trade-off, I think, from, from the style. Um, and so, yeah, I think if you want to get to the truth of the matter as to what happened, you're not going to get that off an interview. But what I think, I mean, it can be a, one source of many if that's your aim. Um, but I think for, for me or some, someone like me approaching it, it's more what do they say they were trying to do I think is more interesting. What, are they, what can we infer from what they were, um, what they're saying about what is it they're actually getting uh, out of it. And then that speaks maybe to the next question. Um, what do they think they're doing? And I think um, it's interesting because I suspect what's happened is this has become not quite par for the course, but a sort of expectation now. You see many more ministers doing this, um, you know, every kind of fresh set of, uh, of um, resignations, and then you see a few we, months we later, a few. <laughs> a few, a few months, you know, a year or two later, there'll be some more people doing it. It's, it's not quite an expectation, but there's a... Um, Sorry, Soft. it's the air conditioning. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> thought I'd bumped my thing. Um, I kind of, uh, yeah, it's sort of becoming uh, almost a routine. Um, and that's diff that, that might be interesting because it might have people approaching it in a different way. I think mm. previously or early on, it was mostly people who probably had a relationship with IFG um, in some shape or form and were doing it either as a form of uh, catharsis 
<laughs> from the experience of doing it, or maybe you know, wanting to pass on lessons to predecessors. Mm. Um, an interesting comparison is the, the Brexit Witness Archive. Mm. I don't yes. know if I'm allowed to mention that, or is that an yes. enemy, right? Okay, it's fine. <laughs> we're so the a collaborative organisation. So, so the Brexit Witness Archive is a very similar um, style, but applied to people who are engaged mm. in, in the Brexit negotiations, mm -hmm. um, hosted by the UK and the Changing Europe. And um, definitely my sense is that those interviews are about catharsis. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, uh, Jess and Ollie, I will come to you, and I'm conscious of time, so these might have to be your, your last words. Uh -huh. So anything you have that you particularly like to say when you're responding to these questions, Jess, um, I'll come I mean, to I think um, many, yeah, agree, John. I think the... For what we're doing, some of the consistency is very is very useful. Um, I particularly um, like, like I said, the consistent question about sort of your advice for a new minister or what makes makes for an effective. I also um, am looking at. There's always a question about crises, mm. um, and I think that's really interesting because I think what's also interesting is asking the minister themselves to define a crisis they face. And there's a lot of variety in what ministers count as a crisis, <laughs> right? From sort of, we lost a document to, you know, there's a war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to the, 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 um, the guy that's get the benefits because he had a wooden leg and the um, <laughs> tag was on the wooden leg and he yeah, took yeah. it off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. Look for that one in the archives. Um, so I think some consistency is always very useful. Um, and then um, I think it's clear, like John said, about sometimes context has lent itself to asking new questions. Um, and I think um, basically what we need to do, speaking uh, to also Nick's question, is, is when we read these or use them, it's also what, what can't they tell us is what, is when, what they can tell us. They're not obviously an objective mm. account, and we have to bear in mind that this is an account of someone who is trying to appear a certain way. We can probably tell from reading it. Um, and therefore, that, can, that tells us, that still answers a question. It just answers a certain type yeah. of question. And it's interesting in of itself, I think, is there variation in who is using it in certain ways or who is presenting the, themselves in certain ways? You know, is there variation in who is maybe more self-depreciating or mentions mm. you know, more about their colleagues' work or um, will admit faults more or, or is trying to correct a record yeah. you know, across different administrations, across different backgrounds, etc. I think that's also interesting in and of itself. What a minister is trying to do with mm. these interviews can tell us a lot maybe mm. about more about how ministers operate, how, how they operate once they leave. Thank you. Uh, and uh, to wrap us up, Orlia, we'll give you the last word. <laughs> I think um, I completely agree with what um, fellow panellists have said. I think one thing that I would add is just that the it, one thing that's really striking about this archive is the level of candour. Mm -hmm. And obviously we read these with a, with a, a degree of critical interpretation. Yeah. But I think there is still um, a, a, a somewhat unusual level, level of candour and sometimes vulnerability from ministers that speaks very well to their relationship with the IFG and, and what this archive can really do that others perhaps can't in the same way. Um, and so that's just a, a wonderful feature of it. Um, that's a yeah. wonderful note to end on as well. Thank you. So, I couldn't have scripted that better. Thank you. Uh, I'm afraid we will have to, to draw this discussion to a close there, even though there are plenty more things that I'm sure we could... Uh, 
talk about. Thank you uh, so much to everybody uh, who's been tuning in online and who's joined us here in the room. If we didn't get time for your questions, please accept my apologies. You might be able to corner our wonderful panelists in the break uh, and speak to them then. Uh, so we're about to take another break. We will be back at about 2.15 when we will be going global uh, and thinking about how ministers' roles in all sorts of different governments compare. So join us then. Uh, but before I let you go, please join me in thanking John, Jess and Orly. Thank you.